The Sports Grid Podcast, episode 338. How can blockchain technology support football clubs? Hello Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest with regards to blockchain technology. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Samir Sirlik. Samir is an investor, entrepreneur and the Chief Operations Officer at BlockSport, where he specialises in how blockchain technology is applied in the sports industry. And for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have him as a podcast special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Samir will share his sports grid journey and explain to you how blockchain technology can be applied in sports teams, particularly in the football industry. Sammy, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please, you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Thank you, Ed. Great to be with you. So um, actually, uh, it started very, very early on in in, in my sort of childhood. I, I ended up being an elite athlete uh, back home playing handball, actually, uh, the sport that is not massive over here in the UK. So uh, at sort of uh, perhaps height of my junior career, I ended up coming to the UK whilst all of my mates ended up playing uh, sort of uh, for Croatia at the time, those early 90s, and uh, ended up winning the Olympic gold and uh, world championships, whereas I set up a handball club here at uni, and we ended up being the England champions. So that was a long time ago. I was drafted to play for the Team GB. And I think had I pursued the training sessions at the Loughborough University, I would have probably played at the London Olympics for a nation here. However, my career sort of took the priority. So I had to put handball on the side. Obviously, as, as many listeners know, it's not a big sport here. It's a huge sport in Europe. It's actually played in front of uh, 30,000 strong arenas, especially Germany and Scandinavia. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my career took me into sort of M&A space. Uh, but in the recent years, I came back to sport from the business side. Uh, first, uh, starting with the Formula E racing, I was very keen to actually take the Formula E racing to the Balkans, uh, where I originally come from. Uh, that's still in the making. I think it takes a little bit of a maneuver to get all the kind of political will and infrastructure right. But then... Um, through a good friend of mine and a business partner, Edmund Chu, uh, who basically owns a number of sporting properties in Europe and in Asia, uh, I ended up looking at football as a sort of uh, uh, the way in which I'd like to enter on the investment front. Uh, then subsequently, I was approached by the football club in Bosnia from which Edin Dzeko came out of. Uh, I became the chairman of their football club. And that's when the kind of the conversation between sport and the blockchain or sort of new technologies really uh, kick, kicked off. And uh, 
I subsequently uh, moved away from the kind of role of chairman in order to sort of penetrate the whole region rather than individual club, building lots of relationships also with Africa and Southeast Asia, because I felt these two continents have got a lot to say. And, uh, you know, subsequently, you know, being in and out of the sport industry on the operations and the investment front gave me a much, much better sort of position to um, assess where sport is going, uh, where the investment of sport is going and how technology fits into it all. So I need to add a time out. What a fantastic answer. And the reason why I smiled right at the beginning with handball, one of my lectures at Durham was a like a professional handball player. So when he said that, he taught me like about motor neurons and like how the brain and the body movement is a fascinating sport. Just before we talk about the business of sport, just reflecting, how is handball as a sport supported you in the business side of sport? Like like the life skills from it. I'm just curious on that side. I mean, Ed, you're absolutely right. I remember sort of friends and uh, fellow students at Sussex Uni, uh, where we set up the club, uh, they were they massively benefited from playing the sport in terms of the business and investment bank, in particular, because uh, you know it's incredibly fast-paced sport. It's not. Uh, it's actually hard to compare it to the likes of rugby, to the likes of basketball. Uh, it's uh, it's all about the team. Uh, and it's all about the speed and the pace, but it's also in, you know, one of these sports that you need to use your brain because everything is happening super fast. So these skills, obviously, the, the, the teamwork being one of the important ones, but also the ability to sort of multitask and think on the spot and be able to change and adapt to the situations that are happening on the pitch uh, are basically the skills you really need in 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 your life or in business as well. So I think from the very young age, um, you know, although I enjoyed playing so many other sports, handball was very much something that uh, I grew up with. Uh, our team back home was uh, one of the best in Europe. Uh, so we grew up around sort of athletes that played the Olympics and, you know, were winning major, major sort of uh, titles in Europe and internationally. So uh, it's definitely the sport that, you know, I wish had more success over here. Uh, but uh, I think there was lots of attempts in the 70s and 80s. And I think when we played in our sort of times um, in the late 90s, we mostly played up against uh, the clubs in Liverpool, Manchester and Scotland. And uh, there was there was a culture of handball there. But it's a great sport. Perhaps we'll touch on that, how important uh, it is to, you know, bring in the sort of technology into the sports like handball as opposed to just football because the focus has been massively on football over the last 10, 20 years. 100%. And just from a micro case study, and I think it's just good for young listeners who are at university, you said you set it up your handball team at your university. Can I just clarify that? Is that correct? Yes, yes. Cool. Right, let's stick to the scene because I just want to sh you to share your learning lessons starting that sport because I started up my darts team in my university at Durham and I learned so many skills of like the communication, making it like getting people on board, playing the sport. I, I look back going, I learned so many lessons because I was the president of how those life skills like of business supported me now. I'm just curious of how setting up a team has helped you in like setting up businesses or working in business as well. I'm just curious. 
Well, uh, Ed, I mean, the, the, the very, very similar skill set is needed when you're setting up a team versus setting up a company in a business and you know, working in a sort of tech space from the mentoring to sort of supporting young uh, tech entrepreneurs on their journey. I think you learn so much. You learn first, you have to, uh, you know, get all the admin uh, done which often is the boring part, but it needs to get done. They need to then go and, and really promote it to the fellow students, not really knowing who's there. So we came across some amazing players from Norway, from Sweden, from, from Spain, from Portugal, from Italy. They played at a really, really high level, Germany. And uh, then you obviously have to uh, figure out what you do with it. How do you really organize everyone? How do you organize uh, sort of the entrance into the league? How, how do you then fund everything? Because uh, there's the element of, you know, it's not free. You need to get yourself to various tournaments. You need to play regular games. You need to then, you know, one, if you're lucky enough to, we end up playing the UK Cup final. Uh, at the time, which we lost. But, uh, you know, there's so much that goes into it. So lots of people think, oh, yeah, it's, it's great to join. But when you have to set everything up for others to benefit, you learn so much. And I think at the time, you don't really, because, you know, passion is very, very important <laughs> behind what you do. I mean, that's why I have a, a passion for tech is 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 on my on, is, is on my jersey today, because I'm very much you know, all about the passion. And I think uh, when passion is um, at the forefront of what you're doing, whether it's sport, whether it's a charity, whether it's business, I think you can you can go so much further than if you're just doing it to, I don't know, improve your chances of success or uh, further your career or make money. I think uh, ultimately, you know, without that passion and that drive, it's very hard to succeed. With regards to implementing passion, I'm putting you on the spot here because I hear that word a lot on this podcast. Like you've got to have the passion work in the industry, but I don't think it's like you you can learn in a textbook. It's it's internal. You have to have that internal drive. Where do you get that internal drive in with regards to technology? Then what what aspect of technology gives you that passion? I think that the sort of education I did masters in maths. Uh, many, many moons ago. And, and I, I played with the idea of doing a PhD at the time. And I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because I think I was too young and I didn't know what I would do it on. I mean, I was offered to do it in maths, but I don't think I was ready to do that. I've started doing it now in blockchain. A PhD in blockchain is, is very much the reason for that is because I want to keep on um, educating myself and updating my own knowledge as well as I'm a big, big fan of uh, bringing the worlds of academia and the industry together in order to cook up something innovative, something new and something so forward thinking. So um, education for me has always been incredibly important. Passion for learning and so thirst and, 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 and hunger for learning has got to be there because uh, it, my view is that if we stop learning, we're technically dead. I mean, however you want to define the, the word dead, I mean, in terms of you know, the sort of uh, real reason for existence, the purpose that I often talk about, because we have to have a purpose. I, I know when you are in your 20s, you don't think about it. You know, when you my age in your you know late 40s, early 50s, it's, it's a little bit different. But I think the new generations, because they have access to information, they have access to knowledge base, they have access to 
books that perhaps we didn't in the 80s and, and sort of 90s when I was growing up and when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, they also have lots of challenges how to keep themselves motivated, how to keep themselves inspired. I think uh, it's very important to keep yourself in check with your own goals. I think it's important to journal your journey. And I think it's important to find a way how you can pass down the little knowledge or lots of knowledge you have to the next generation in order to deepen your knowledge. I mean, I often, you know, my kids are 10, 12 and 14 and we, we, and they are all on the England player pathway for hockey for, you know, playing the, you know, football academy level and, and doing athletics at a high level. And we often talk about the importance of the, you know, the, the drive, the passion, and also the, the PB, the personal best. And I think only a couple of weeks ago, Djokovic uh, made a very valid point uh, on one of the one, one of his interviews where he said, if I go on the court and I beat myself in terms of the personal best, I can beat anyone else on the other side of the net. And I think it's the same with us as individuals. If we get up and go every day with the intention to learn, to improve, to do that little bit extra, we can achieve anything we want to achieve in, in our life, no matter what uh, challenges, what circumstances are facing us right now. It really goes to a point of my good friend, Alistair McCaw, it's like achieving excellence, but personal excellence. That's sort of the drive you should have. And that's why I wanted to ask that question about passion, because it's so used, but I loved how you articulated it there. I want to bring it back to now to your career journey. Before we talk about blockchain, I'm super fascinated of your curiosity or involvement in investment because I assume your investment knowledge or in your your involvement in that has supported you in the blockchain space and that development side. Could you just share a bit of the background of the the involvement you are in from an investment standpoint with regards to your career journey? Having been an entrepreneur and having had successes and failures, having exited businesses at profit as well as shut them down because they weren't going anywhere. I was always throwing up with an idea at what stage do I want to actually go into the world of investment and start looking at the opportunities from the investor's viewpoint rather than the viewpoint of the of the sort of entrepreneur. Because I think you know that there are so many great ideas out there that uh, get funded. But at the same time, I think majority of the great ideas don't get funded because the ecosystem, the infrastructure in the investment world isn't there and isn't helping single family offices, multifamily offices and institutional investors in the way in which they should really filter uh, the sort of right opportunities. And also, because I, I, I'm a great believer there are so many uh, great opportunities out there that we as investors miss because we don't have the bandwidth to, to be able to actually um, rate them, uh, to be able to index them properly. And this is, you know, an endemic issue within the, the investment ecosystem. Wherever you go, with the, with the big boys in terms of the VCs, to the individual investors, to the single family offices, they have a, you know, enough money to deploy, but don't, they don't really go. So there's lots of bias in the world of investment. And this is something that I'm very eager to change. I mean, on, on top of interest, always being interested in acquiring businesses that are profitable, that are sort of uh, already 
have been around the block for 5, 10, 20 years where the basically owners are ready to sell, they're ready to retire, they're ready to uh, sort of move on and, and sort of concentrate on other things. You always look at, you know, how much you can, how much value you can add to the existing business, what it is that you can do differently to the previous owners that can scale the operations, that can open new markets and, and sort of, uh, create new opportunities. And of course, when you are in the, in, in the position of the investor, you're also looking at how you can mobilize the local economy or the national economy, how you can create new jobs and new opportunities and how you can actually maintain the, the legacy that somebody else has built because investors, you know, unlike entrepreneurs, they, they start from a particular position where they either taken the equity position or acquired a business outright. And you have to have a slightly different skill set to the skills of, of those entrepreneurs. And I often talk to fellow investors about uh, you know, the, the, the sort of differentiating factors between the entrepreneurs and investors. And I also talk to entrepreneurs often about uh, the fact that even though they might have founded the business, they're not always the right person to drive the business as a CEO. And, 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 you know, th there is that thing of at what stage does it make sense to fire the founder as a CEO, not as a, as a sort of not do what the VCs tend to do, which is basically squeeze them out of the equation and dilute their equity. What I'm talking about, which, which something you brought up at the start at is the skill set. As somebody who had a great idea, who's a tech guy, might be a great CTO, might be a great guy to actually do all the development, all the programming, all the coding, et cetera, but may not be the right guy and the right person to drive the company globally and onto the global scale and, and, and a sort of a, a international front. And this is something that I'm seeing um, and I'm trying to change positively because the boards tend to be very cushiony around the founders and the CEOs uh, to the detriment of the business. And uh, I've been in position of, uh, you know, really promoting the, the positive change and bringing in the, the people with the right skill set in order to grow the operations much, much faster and much, much, you know, higher than it is at the moment. But uh, there's lots of, uh, lots of sort of, I would say, opposition to that. I think people aren't understanding that, uh, Sometimes you have to step aside. Sometimes you have to let better equipped people to drive it because the most successful people in the world always surround themselves with smarter people than them. You know, and I'm a great believer that, you know, I might be smart, but I'm definitely not going to be the smartest in the room. And I'd be the happiest if I have 10 times smarter people than me around me driving certain aspects of the business that have no issues because Often the ego gets in the way. When the ego gets in the way, the business goes down because my understanding of the business is that we ought to service the interest of the business, not our own interests. Because if we are servicing our own interests, it's a lifestyle business, it's not a scalable business, and then we should not really be as uh, as ambitious, as aspirational as we are. So how do we manage that sort of ego slash confidence in making those decisions? I think such an individual thing, uh, um, and it's got nothing to do with the age. Uh, I come across 
you know, what I call young kids in their early 20s that are incredibly smart and wise, and they get it. They understand that they're on their now third, fourth business, successful exits, and uh, they're really, really all about, you know, making an impact and changing the world in a positive way off the back of the businesses they bring uh, sort of to, to fruition and ultimately exit. I think my generation and older, uh, it's much harder to mold them into the belief that, you know, they're not often the best people to drive the business forward. I think there's that old school way of thinking of the almost the 20th century so pyramid uh, where you worked your way up for the last 20 plus years and you don't really want to relinquish that space, even though you know you're not the best and the fittest for the role. Uh, so I think we need more education in that particular space. I think we need more open discussions. I think we need more successful case studies where the founders have happily stepped down from the role of the, you know, CEO in particular. That's a kind of, that's a face of the brand. It's a face of the business because, you know, I recently came across a founder who said to me, I don't like traveling. I don't like people. I only like my team. <laughs> and I said to him, but surely, you know, if you want to go on a road trip, if you want to go and raise Series C and D, if you want to list your company at uh, any of the stock exchanges, you've got to do all of these things. You've got to like people. You've got to address the media all the time. You've got to issue statements and you've got to so basically engage with the, with the international audience and the new markets as well. But if all you like which you know is also fine is is your people inside a company especially your your developers that you have worked over the past seven years with and and, and developed this uh, great business which is now profitable then you should really uh, concentrate on that and let somebody else run the show um so you know th there are these conversations that i continuously have um i'd like to get the sort of new generations to understand that even better. I think uh, main reason I enjoy giving guest lectures is, is really to not only bring in my my knowledge and experience, but also engage with the with the new and next generation in terms of what it is that they think is the right thing and how we can actually do it together. I do have one more question before we talk about today's podcast topic. It's just been on my mind. Out of interest. How being an entrepreneur has made you a better investor and how being an investor has made you a better entrepreneur? I think um, in simple terms, I perhaps understand entrepreneurs a lot better than your traditional investors that have always ever been doing the investment, either by having done the investment banking, then moved to the VCs or hedge funds or any other investment uh, funds. Um, you actually acquire certain skill set as an entrepreneur, as we talked about setting up a any club or team that uh, teaches you certain skills. I think you then have a, I think a lot more empathy um, and compassion towards the journey the entrepre entrepreneurs are going on. And you kind of naturally want to protect them and safeguard their interests rather than just uh, uh, safeguard the interest of the investors. Because I think, a win-win is uh, a, a very important component that everyone talks about, but not everyone follows through. Uh, so the corporate world often is harsh and ruthless 
towards the the sort of young up and coming uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, the certain models in the VC world, in particular, uh, sort of knowing that they will probably have one in ten success uh, at certain stages, also shut down certain operations because of the cycle uh, they're in. Uh, so I think understanding how the investment world operates and understanding how the world of entrepreneurs operates and sort of still being involved with both in one way or another just puts me in a stronger position of being able to understand the full 360 degree sort of approach. Uh, unlike a cushiony seat of an investor, I don't think I would have really understood the entrepreneurs the way I do now. Just going back on one point you said about sort of mistake with entrepreneurs and investors is they don't follow through of that win-win approach. Could you give just some sort of example or some, you know, things you see where it doesn't follow through? For example, could it be if an entrepreneur fails on a certain aspect, it they don't follow through that it's just part of the journey? I'm just thinking on top of my head as an example, is that what you meant of that not following through? Often investors uh, give the entrepreneurs very, very unrealistic KPIs that are linked to the follow-on investment rounds or even subject to the entire ticket being followed through off the back of these KPIs. And I I have an issue with the KPIs in, in sort of being very dry and very sort of single-winded uh, 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 and single-layered approach where you know, there's so many different circumstances that could interfere in the process of the first six to 12 months where, you know, that investment is crucial for the success of the business. And sadly, entrepreneurs aren't yet in the position that they have lots of offers on the table. So they don't also uh, do enough due diligence or, or sort of have the good enough understanding what they're actually signing. And, uh, you know, one both sides should allow the more flexibility in relation to the actual bottom line and the figures that have been agreed on because it's not a linear straightforward journey it's a journey full of bumps uh, there's all sorts of circumstances including geopolitical and global ones which we're experiencing now that can get in the way and i just find far too easily certain opportunities are just thrown uh, away because of a misunderstanding and misalignment. And I often talk about the importance of alignment. Uh, when the minds are aligned between the investors and entrepreneurs or between individuals or between companies, that's when the, the best things and the most successful things happen. Absolutely. I hope people are taking notes on what a really fascinating conversation so far. Getting to today's podcast topic, which is all about blockchain. How can blockchain from a technology sort of tool support sports teams like i'm curious about this space in general but from a sports team perspective from your experience how can blockchain influence development first of all Ed, not many people realize that the blockchain technology has been around for a few decades now i think uh, when i talk and give lectures i often talk about the fact that crypto isn't blockchain Bitcoin isn't blockchain. These are just the small components of blockchain because blockchain uh, as the foundation technology I often talk about uh, is really based on three T's, trust, traceability, and transparency. And uh, far too many players in the sports tech space have entered in the last five, six years with the main sort of uh, mission to 
access as many fans as consumers and turn them into the money-making machine for the benefit of their own companies. Um, the sports industry hasn't yet fully realized the, 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 the great potential that the blockchain uh, technology is offering off the back of the sports tech uh, a sort of uh, space which has the likes of NFTs and tokens that everyone's talking about, but also, more importantly, has the fan engagement platforms which should enable the sports clubs, federations, and leagues uh, a, a sort of a great opportunity to do two important things. Uh, one is to deepen that fan engagement and two, the creation of new revenue streams. So you will remember that during the uh, COVID times, all of a sudden, you know, clubs no longer had fans at stadiums. The sponsorship deals pretty much collapsed overnight. And it was very, very difficult for them to actually survive. Many of them didn't survive. And, and I think we will see further uh, sort of uh, bankruptcies being uh, being issued in the sports industry as a result of the many clubs not being able to adopt fast enough in the new era. Now, what some of them are, are realizing, and I think this is where the emphasis on education is really needed. You know, as a former chairman of the football club, as somebody who's involved in the investment of football and the sports industry, so I really understand, you know, what the operations look like, but also what the opportunities outside of the operations, which, let's say, in football, what the, those club owners and operators are used to is the transfer window, is the sponsorship deals, and the media rights. They actually, and, and of course, they almost expect their fans to be consuming whatever they're consuming, often the, you know, the sale of tickets and jerseys and the usual stuff. But they've not realized that uh, fans today, especially the, the digital native ones, the sort of, uh, uh, the, the Gen Z and Gen Alpha expect a very, very different treatment when it comes down and also opportunities in terms of the engagements when it comes down to them. So uh, being at the forefront of the education of the sporting property operators and owners over the past few years has been a very, very arduous task because uh, many of them are seeing blockchain and sports tech as the cost center as opposed to investment one. And they are sort of lacking the right resources in order to sort of be able to fully understand and fully formalize the digital strategy for the benefit of their club. The ones that actually are realizing it, they're starting to see that they can not only create new revenues and give their fans money can't buy experiences through, you know, premium subscription, the fan missions, the, you know, much better engagement, even free uh, NFT drops. I mean, uh, NFTs that had a really bad rap last year off the back of the collapse of FTX platforms and, and some of the other ones can also be used as the tools of engagement. They don't necessarily need to be immediately the revenue generating uh, sort of uh, opportunities for these clubs. So the ones that are realizing that there is a lot to play for in there are starting to hire differently. They're starting to actually hire uh, people from the blockchain and tech space rather than this from the sports industry. And they're also starting to realize that if they play their cards right, they could acquire fans internationally and globally. For example, Southeast Asia 
is uh, full of digital natives in the countries like Indonesia, Vietnam. Um, you know, these are the countries of sort of Philippines, 100, 200 million people. And they're all incredibly digitally savvy. And they are looking for new uh, sports, new clubs, new teams to engage with. And they're happy to engage with the uh, likes of, uh, you know, the clubs that are not your Man U's, Man City's and Chelsea's and Arsenal's of the world. So uh, there is a huge, huge opportunity for those that want to fully understand it to actually go down the road that uh, they wouldn't have thought was possible only a few years ago. Just from an educational standpoint, with regards to blockchain with Web3, are they, when I say they integrated or are they the same or are they just different terms? That side, from my learning, it's all these different terms over the last three years. I think that's where there's so much confusion. And I'm just curious of like, where does Web3 fit into the mold with all the other terms we've discussed in this conversation? So, you know, uh, everyone's talking about um, the sort of move from Web2 to Web3. So Web2, web your, your sort of typical internet websites uh, and Web3 being really metaverse and uh, what's happening in the digital world and how do we create the digital equivalent of the physical that we are seeing in the in, in so current format. Um, there is a lot of confusion out there and I think uh, we, we ought to put certain things straight. You know, blockchain, as I said, blockchain technology has been around for many, many decades now. I think everyone's really talking about the emergence of Bitcoin, so Satoshi, the emergence of uh, uh, Ethereum with Vitalik, uh, and then uh, the emergence of Solana uh, as the sort of, uh, a, a sort of platform that is able to create thousands of transactions per second versus 12 uh, uh, per second, you know, only 10 years ago and one per second uh, 15, 20 years ago. So I think if we're looking at a sort of blockchain 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0, so that's where you have uh, Bitcoin is 1.0, Ethereum is 2.0 2015 versus 2008. Don't forget that uh, Bitcoin was basically conceived at the collapse of Lehman's and the big banking crisis 2008. And, you know, people don't realize that in these big recessions and crisis, financial crisis, there's always emergence of something new, something quite groundbreaking. So if we are looking at sort of dot-com bust of 2000 versus, you know, all the recessions we've had ever since, including 2008 and now the global recession, the COVID post-pandemic, uh, there is a, a lot of uh, talk and uh, I think lots of confusion in relation to what's what. Blockchain has found its application today in every single industry. Many people uh, sort of uh, still believe that blockchain is all about fintechs and now sports tech because of the NFTs and the sports media entertainment. But in actual fact, uh, from education to governments to charities to transport, and I have a slide which I normally uh, use uh, when I'm talking to students about the application of blockchain technology. It's absolutely everywhere because it's a it's a foundation technology. It's the part of the fourth industrial revolution, which is for the first time about empowering people versus empowering uh, organizations and corporations. Because if you look at from the 18th century to today, 
every previous industrial revolution was all about empowering corporations. This is the first time that we have the opportunity as the, you know, international global populace to engage in peer-to-peer transactions and, uh, and create an, a new value add that could also benefit us wherever we might be and uh, whatever circumstances we are born into or whatever economical climate we are actually part of. So um, Web3 that's being used a lot these days, of course, it's about the new form of the monetization of the communities and fan bases. As somebody who works both with cities on the sort of community engagement, as well as clubs, leagues, federations on the fans in, fan engagement front, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that this is, this is the next sort of five to 10 years or 20 years are going to be very, very interesting and exciting if we get it right. And um, you mentioned Web3. I often mention metaverse is, is sort of the word that not many really understand. And I think we are probably, um, if we think of where Web3 is right now, um, I think we are where the internet was in 1997. Now, Ed, we are in 2023. So that was good 26 years ago. You might not remember where the internet was in 1997. I do, but I can tell you we are sort of uh, so many uh, sort of junctions away from, from that. So this is the infancy. This is the exciting part. And I think we just need more trust and more transparency. You know, I was last week at the London Tech Week at the panel on the digital uh, trust. You know, how do we promote and build a digital trust in the space? You know, how how do people and consumers trust the organizations they're part of? You know, what what are the benefits and 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 what are the sort of risks associated with with this digital trust? So there's so much work to be done, and I think. Uh, we're just at the beginnings. And just one thing you mentioned with regards to that pandemic when sponsorships did go down at that time, I want to integrate how this tech or blockchain can benefit brands when working with teams. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that side of how it could lead to new activations, new collaborations when done right. I know that's a big question, but for me, that's where I think it's exciting. But do you think the brands just need educating as we do of understanding how this all works? Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Tim of Capital Block and Capital Sports because he's a, he's like me, big on education, education of clubs, teams, but also education of brands. I think brands tend to jump in because they have the deep enough pockets and they can actually fund and finance uh, these against trials and pilots to see where they end up. But uh, often they don't have uh, the right people uh, inside the organizations to be able to drive the engagement. Because I think what, what the brands ultimately want, they want uh, better engagement with their end consumers. They want a new customer acquisition off the back of uh, as such new ideas and new sort of platforms. And ultimately, they want to put their brand in front of millions of others in, in order to sort of, uh, keep their brand positioning inside the marketplace. Uh, my views on it are that if done 
legitimately and with the right intentions um, at nobody's expense and not at the profit at the forefront of their minds, they will create the longevity and they will create ultimately the sustainable uh, business model off the back of something new that will be beneficial for them and profitable too. I've been involved for many, many years with the uh, uh, sort of uh, importance of social impact with the even the, 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 the sort of uh, London Business School Social Impact Club and some other university uh, and clubs uh, outside of universities. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer that the entrepreneurs, investors and, uh, and the sort of senior executives 21st century ought to be uh, sort of on the, on the cusp of the social impact. Uh, rather than just uh, sort of pure profitability behind what they're doing, because uh, we we need more sustainable ideas and solutions in the society as a whole. And when I say sustainable, I'm not necessarily talking about sustainability in terms of the climate change and everything else. That's by the by, and that's what the United Nations are really promoting with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. But if you uh, are responsible towards what you're doing, you will create a much more sustainable business anyhow because uh, you're doing it with care and, and sort of passion and certain vision to uh, inspire, to educate, to engage, to empower those that are benefiting from whatever you're offering. And it could be a simple product, but now with a, with a sort of power of digital, you can, you can really you can go much, much further afield than uh, than you've been able to be to do over the past 10 or 20 years. Just to the listeners who are hearing this whole conversation, they're going, all right, Ed, all right, Samir, how can I fit in of working in this space? Because so many components, I know Attitude, we've talked about having the passion behind it, but from your experience, what core skills do you actually need to work in this industry space which is very young you said you need the right people how would you define those right people working in this space well i mean that's a that's a million dollar question in terms of the skill set because uh, i personally don't think that a, a different type of skill set is needed in the blockchain space to working in an um, in investment bank or in any any form of uh, institution um financial legal uh accountancy otherwise i think um what i would suggest and sort of perhaps um tell the students or the listeners to do is to update their knowledge and deepen their knowledge about the blockchain space of course you need to uh be lateral thinker you've got to uh, be able to think outside the box. You have to be analytical these days in the 21st century. You've got to really, really sort of uh, delve much, much deeper within yourself and uh, play to your core strength. You've got to be, you've got to be honest about what you want because there's one thing I want to just get a job to pay the bills, which uh, many students, you know, after you know a few years of studying and lots of cases, uh, you know tens of thousands of pounds of student loans and, and, and all, the, all the sort of expenses that come with that. They, they want to try to pay that off. But I would, I would sort of uh, recommend that they really try and understand uh, the space better. I think uh, there are lots and lots of uh, podcasts, lots and lots of material out there 
that many are posting that the sort of established figures in the space are really posting free of charge so you can really learn. And, uh, you know, you've got to approach it like any other career. I, I think that that's, that's a question I get, I get asked all the time from the students, you know, what skill set? And I said, you know, of course, uh, you know, the knowledge and your understanding of why you, you, why you want to get into this space is more important than the actual skill set because most of the things you will learn on the job, you're going to have to be uh, sort of convincing enough to say that you're there to learn, you're there to bring everything you have in terms of what you have acquired so far. There's no kind of uh, shortcuts in anything you do uh, when it comes down to the career development. And you just got to throw yourself uh, into it. And when they put themselves into it, you said a really good point very early on in the conversation with regards to building those relationships in this space, like reflecting now all the networking, should we say, and building those relationships, how they support you now in this area of the industry as well? I mean, absolutely. I think that's mission critical. Um, You have to put yourself out there. You've got to, um, you know, I was at the event uh, last week as well in uh, Canary Wharf and there was a a guy who was in his, I think, early 20s. Um, So I was with a person from HSBC Ventures and we were just listening to lots of pitches by various entrepreneurs uh, throughout the night and he came up to us and he sort of said, you know, you know, what do I do uh, to get a job in the space? You know, you know, I'm, I'm really keen, I'm passionate, but I don't know this space, you know. And then we asked him, so how did you end up here? He said, well, my mum knew the organizer or one of the organizers. So she told me where to go. I said, well, that's a good, good start. I said, you've got to be out there. Uh, you've got to be. And then he started saying, you know, but this is not the space I know and I understand. And we both said to him, don't make any uh, excuses and don't apologize ever. You here, you with the right people in the right room. Now get yourself out there, get the CV sorted out. You know, link us in, very important to have a, a very, very solid LinkedIn page. I think lots and lots of recruiters, headhunters to these days are really looking at uh, those who are on LinkedIn. When you're on LinkedIn, you've got to be also active. Uh, and you've got to show that you're out and about. So you go to various events, you post something, you know, you, you just, again, be honest. What, what has inspired you today and what's inspiring you day to day, week to week? Uh, and it could be, you know, somebody you met or it could be something you've read, but you know, people buy from people. And I think uh, ultimately with all the technology in the world, uh, it comes down to that face to face encounter or if it's done on Zoom, lots of, Interviews these days are actually done remotely and on Zoom. Lots of jobs these days are hybrid and you work partly from home or partly from from the office. So it's so important to get out there. I mean, networking, especially early on in your career, is be all and end all of whether you're going to actually make it big or whether you're going to just stay in, in a sort of comfortable cushiony position and not really develop. The listener, you're taking notes. That was absolutely gold to me and you're spot on. Like, even through my experience, getting yourself in the room, it is really, really important. I just want now to talk, go back to your career now, because you, you've got so many cool roles, but I want to talk about Block Sport. Like, could you just share what they do and what your main role is there? I know you touched on it with regards to the blockchain and the community, but could you just delve in a bit more detail? 
So I came across Blocksport when I was the chairman of the football club. And I think my, my, my sort of main mission around the football club at the time was really to bring the latest technology into the club and, and sort of globalize it off the back of the you know, power of the sports deck in particular. And then ultimately, I, I met the founders. I sort of had, uh, when I decided to step down from the chairman role, then I had other opportunities to kind of throw myself into the sports deck. I just felt uh, there were, at the time, in my view, the only company that... Um, had a good setup in terms of understanding the sports industry. Wasn't uh, the company that was offering just a one particular solution, but the entire full digital ecosystem and digital infrastructure for clubs, leagues, and federation to actually build their story uh, with this powerful blockchain technology that somebody has invested millions in and can also get the education as a result of that rather than just a service because most service provider and SaaS platforms just basically sell you the service and leave you uh, to your own devices to do that. Whereas Blocksport was all about engaging with its partners. That's why I often told the media, we're not looking for customers, we're looking for partners and we are a true uh, sort of partnership and a true technology and blockchain partner. Every club league and federation we end up working with and we have built now uh, a few dozen solutions that include the fun engagement app with all bells and whistles, NFT launchpad, and also non-speculative fun token launchpad, which is more than uh, just a traditional fun tokens uh, as we know it. It's about digital membership. It's about digital collectibles. It's about the way in which you engage with your fans. It's about the way in which you engage with your sponsors. And it's also... Uh, increases massively your value add towards your partners and sponsors because instead of utilizing the social media such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, uh, where and YouTube, where you don't own content and you don't own data, when you bring everything under one roof and you bring everything inside your own fan engagement platforms where the fans can do the fan missions, they can do subscribe to the premium subscription, they can have money can't buy sort of experiences off the back of digital membership that they couldn't in the past, then you really start seeing the difference uh, between the fans and the clubs they're part of. And I think that's what makes Blocksport very unique. And uh, only last month we were selected by the Deutsche Telekom and T-Mobile USA as one of uh, very few companies in the world that are sort of reshaping the, the sports industry from the tech viewpoint. And uh, we are now in the process of working uh, more closely with both the Deutsche Telekom and T-Mobile USA on some very exciting new propositions for the 24. Right. This is one final million dollar question, but you've just mentioned it throughout the whole conversation. Like, where do you see blockchain really influencing the future of the sports industry, not just football teams or sports teams, but also how athletes can brand themselves to using this technology? Like, where do you see sort of the, the scope of this from a future standpoint? I think the scope is huge. Ed. Uh, we, we mentioned that we're at its infancy. I think there's lots of trial and error happening in the space. Uh, it's great to see that more and more athletes are coming in as investors, as well as, as the sort of uh, protagonist of the Web3 and blockchain by understanding um, what it does for them and how they can benefit from 
this new uh, sort of revolutionary technology that's been around for some time now. Um, the biggest value add I see is the fan engagement uh, done in the right way. I think we haven't seen a single percent of its potential when it comes down to the way in which the digital natives today are consuming content and consuming matches in a very different way. If you go to Southeast Asia uh, to a football or basketball match, uh, you'll realize that 50% of the time, if not higher, these fans are actually uh, on their smartphones versus uh, being glued to what's happening on the pitch or in the arena. So anyone who manages to engage with their fans in a different way and offer them you know, a, a sort of a value-add experience, uh, even if that's the digital experience. And I think where it's going to explode, ultimately, it's going to be metaverse. It's going to be avatars. It's going to be the ability to talk to your hero. You know, today, Messi and, and, and Ronaldo in the future, there'll be new heroes. To be able to uh, sort of uh, speak to them or speak uh, to them in a room of, you know, 50 or 100 other fans and then be able to chat to them through your avatar and their avatar up in the metaverse, which is already happening. I mean, I was in Israel end of last year. Uh, Tel Aviv is a great tech hub uh, that's that's bringing out some of the you know best, best uh, tech innovation. Uh, I'm often in Belgrade, another place which is really sort of uh, now proving to be one of the uh, most talked about tech hubs in Europe. Uh, where, where there's sort of so many synergies with the rest of the world. So I'm very excited about the, the space. I think, you know, uh, many are nervous, uh, rightly because there's been some disastrous sort of contracts and, and sort of uh, suggestions and ideas uh, that didn't actually work out. But uh, it's exciting times ahead for all of us. 100%. Look, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but Samir, out of interest, reflecting, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? That's a tough one. I think there's been punctuations of the uh, enjoyment. I think uh, uh, playing, actively playing handball uh, and, and sort of winning winning the championship was probably the most enjoyable on their practical side. I think bringing in the innovation in the world of sport is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And it's it's kind of now defining my sort of next 10 to 20 years in the space. So, uh, you know, I think the combination of uh, winning trophies and uh, bringing in the innovation will probably be uh, the answer to your question. It's so good that you got back to your answer with the sport and the passion, like from the grassroots standpoint. Look, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Samir, and I always finish with an inspirational one. And feel free to recap some of the points you said in this whole conversation. But what three tips would you give to the listener right now to take literally three steps to start their career in the blockchain sector of the sports industry or technology as well? Do lots of uh, research in the space. There's some amazing, amazing places to go and look for. Uh, in, in understanding what the blockchain in the sports industry or what the sports tech is all about. Um, network and find uh, the events that are happening in your town, city, wherever you might be. Or if you can't do it physically, do it online. There's some amazing online events that you can actually register, often for free. Sometimes you've got to pay for. 
and uh, be very proactive in sort of reaching out to the people that are already in the space. Uh, get your CVs ready because you're going to have to answer lots of questions when it comes down to somebody finding your profile interesting. And just if, if, if you're passionate about, you've got to pursue it as it's your uh, sort of ultimate dream and goal to enter the space and you will. 100%. I love that, that second one being proactive. That is vital. Um, out of interest, how can people interact with you online? But also, could you share sort of some of the guest lecturers you do as well? Just if there's any academics listening in, they know there's more information of reaching out to you on that. Way is LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not on any other social media platforms purely because I wouldn't have time to, to sort of engage with the audience. Uh, time is, uh, you know, my biggest asset and, and, and something that I really need to be mindful of. So um, I'm more than happy to uh, talk to anyone uh, if they link me in and, and ask a direct question. I, in, in, in so majority of the cases, if not 10 out of 10, answer those uh, relatively quickly. So LinkedIn is the best place. I'm always open to continue uh, with my guest lecture sort of uh, uh, circuit. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to students around the world. Uh, I've got something coming up in the US, something in India, something in Asia. Uh, I was in Austria a couple of days ago uh, delivering a lecture there. So uh, very, very keen developing something at the Warwick Business School as well in terms of the sort of long-term series of lectures and, and lots of others. So uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to engage. Amazing. To all the listeners, this Samir's LinkedIn link will be on my website with regards to this amazing podcast chat. Samir, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ed, and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you. What a brilliant podcast chat with Samir. And for you, yes, I mean you, the listener, I hope you have got a better understanding of the qualities of pursuing a career in this sector of the sports industry, particularly with regards to the understanding of the application of NFTs, blockchain, Web3. As Samir said, like it's been around. It's just us having an understanding how it's applied. Like with regards to the conversation we had, about nfts i'm always fascinated and curious of how football clubs are integrating it with regards to fan engagement activations it's so important to have a real curiosity and interest in it like samir said once upon a time he was studying maths and then he really pivoted into like technology in being like an entrepreneur trial and error and then experience being an investor all these elements relate to the future of the sports industry with regards to his curiosity of how blockchain can be a great tool in modern business, but particularly applied in the sports industry as well. So I just want to highlight that everybody, including me, is figuring out from a learning standpoint. It's just having a real understanding of the use of that technology and how it's applied. That's the key thing. And even with my learning, I'm getting a better understanding. So for example, I got an NFT from Angel City. They did that as part of their promotion of getting new fans in. And it's great. I felt part of it. I'm a big fan of Angel City because they're a very value-driven club. And that is what got me curious about how they're integrating NFTs within the way of marketing and getting fan engagement and getting new fans across the world. That's the power of it when utilized right. And as Samir said, it's not always about the monetization. Of course, that's the key later on down the road. But at the beginning, a lot of people are using it just to see the benefits. And I think that's the approach I would recommend is 
go with curiosity and real interest. And then if you want to really go into this sector, the sports industry, it's all about your transferable skills. It's all about your key interest and then how you apply it in that area and in that niche. But overall, it was such a joy to have Samir on the podcast, even him sharing his background in handball and the lessons from sport, the lessons of starting a sport at university with regards to the handball team. All these skills will really, if you apply, if you're a student and you haven't set up a team, set up a team. You'll benefit from it from the learning experience because you just model that into the real world, meaning in real sport, setting up a real club, that's where you get the real life experience when you apply it. So I really do hope you've enjoyed it and really apply those sports career tips right at the end, particularly with regards to the networking side. Like if you're in that room, you're honestly halfway there. It's just how you approach yourself with your first impression and then build meaningful relationships throughout your time in the sports industry. That never stops, by the way. But that networking component is vital, particularly with regards to connecting with the right people who have credibility. That's the thing about anything that's new. It's finding the right people to learn from, but also the right people in the industry. You can get mentorship, but also who are doing the best practice in a new field or should we say a field that everybody's getting more involved in if that makes sense so really put your biggest takeaway from this podcast apply it to your sports career development now and make it happen now as always at the end of each podcast episode i'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker samir said it's critical to do your research on all the terminologies like blockchain web3 nfts understand the terminology then network by getting yourself at these certain events to learn more and then be proactive with the opportunities you create in this space.